This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Tony Crowsdale, a.k.a. Tony Pointless, and Bull Gervasi, a.k.a. my brother, uh, both of the band Rambo. Uh, today is March the 20th, the first day of spring, 2013. This interview is being conducted at Cinder Garden in West Philadelphia, and this is part of Loud Fest Philly. A uh, bit of an introduction before we start the actual interview, uh, because part of this interview is with my own brother, uh, I'm not going to delve so much into his uh, history and introduction uh, uh, of how punk was introduced into his life and all that, because we're going to cover that in another interview that's going to be conducted by a different person with the Cabbage Collective, which includes Bull and Chris Fry and me, and then we'll talk about uh, a little bit of our history. So we'll leave that for that interview. Uh, for now, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Tony's history and then move into Rambo, where, where Bull will come in and we'll talk about them. So, hello, Tony. Hello. <laughs> okay. Uh, could you tell me what year you were born and where? Uh, 1976, Philadelphia. Yeah, right. Actually, technically, I was born in Abington, which is the bane of my existence because I lived my entire life in the city of Philadelphia. But for some reason, the Philadelphia Fire Department's health care plan had my hospital of delivery being in Abington. So I was conceived and gestated in Philadelphia. Uh -huh. I was driven outside of, my mom was driven outside of Philadelphia, delivered me, and then probably the next day or so driven back into Philadelphia where I remained the rest of my life. Okay. No, fair enough. But uh, it's this county of birth Montgomery on my birth certificate. And these that's posers pretty, that's from Ardmore <laughs> that were born in Einstein, there says county of birth Philadelphia. So <laughs> I can see you're very bitter about this. Yeah. Uh, so what neighborhood of Philadelphia did you grow up in? Uh, Wissanoming and then Mayfair. Uh, and what are those places like for those who don't have any idea? Uh, um, white working class. You know. And you said your father was a firefighter. Yeah, that's, he, he was a firefighter for 36 years. Okay. So tell me a little bit about little tiny Tony. Like 70s and 80s Tony, pre-punk, what were your what were your interests? What were you like? As I was super focused on nature since I was like two or three. Um, my mom says that some leaves fell into like a neighbor's like cement bird bath and I was asking and they curled up and I was asking if there were seahorses at like two. <laughs> so like I've been super into nature since I was a little kid. It's been like my my jam, you know, since I can remember reading Ranger Rick, mm -hmm. you know, magazine and. He was a little um, raccoon, right? Yeah. And he wore a little raccoon uniform. Mm -hmm. And my parents had a trailer in the Pine Barrens, and I, and so the summers of when I was seven, eight, and nine, uh, I spent there. My dad would come. He would you know forties on forties off as a firefighter, and sometimes he would actually, so he'd say Philly, and then he would actually drive to the Pine Barrens, pick me up, take me to the Spectrum to watch like Hulk Hogan wrestle, and then back to the Pine Barrens. So was wrestling also a big part of your, your upbringing? My first record was rock and wrestling. Mm -hmm. Who but was it, on that record? Uh, Junkyard Dog sang Grab Them Cakes. <laughs> um, uh, uh, me and Gene Okerin did uh, um, Tutti Frutti. Um, what was it? Um, the um, Derringer. Real American, which was actually Wyndham and Rotunda's song, but somehow Hulk Hogan took it from him, you know. And um, this yeah. shit happens at wrestling, so you never know what's yeah. gonna go down. But I'm like, I was really in the WWF like when it was happening, like the the heyday, you know. But I, I, it's not like I'm one of these people that like still are all about 
like wrestling now and like just way more people that are like wrestling fanatics now I'm not like one of those that didn't really stay with me okay so uh, tell me about the introduction uh, introduction of punk into your life I was at a Earth Day rally um, it was like an Earth Day event from Fairmont Park do you remember what year this was 91 maybe my um, um, I was 15 my father was the president of the Friends of the Penny Pack, like in a uh, park advocacy group up in Northeast Philly. And so I went to this Earth Day event in Memorial Hall, um, which was where the park commission was uh, headquartered then. And Jerry Brown spoke at it. And there was a, uh, um, like a rally for him. But I, I was just there, and I was wearing a Cure shirt and an army jacket, and three punks came up to me, one... One lady was wearing a Crash T-shirt and it said, Fight War, Not Wars. And they just came up to me because in Philly in the early 90s, there wasn't that great of a scene. So, you know, I don't. I think nowadays if someone, you know, wearing like a Discharge shirt saw someone wearing a Cure shirt, they wouldn't like go talk to them. But back in the day, like anybody that was like freaky, like gravitated towards each other. Mm. So they started talking to me and I just was, I saw that Crash shirt and the saying on it. I was like, this is crazy. And then, you know, as a guy who grew up in a violent neighborhood, like, not, like, don't mistake, I'm not saying my neighborhood was, like, gang wars, violent, I mean, I just mean, like, brawler, like, you grow up, like, getting jumped for no reason all the time, and I especially got, like, picked on because I was a weird kid into nature, and, but as I got in nature, and bird watching specifically, you know, you started, as you got older, you started realizing that society... And the government is complicit in fucking nature over. So you're, you're alienated from your peers because you're like nature. You know, you're fighting all the time. And then you then you start, like, this thing that you love so much that, like, is your, like, the Pine Barrens for me was, like, my salvation. You know, I'd go, I wouldn't have to get fights for those summers, you know, or that much. <laughs> or I would have, I would get jumped by groups of people. I might have a one-on-one fight, whatever. Maybe but, a tick would bite you. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't like it was. A, it was a much better, you know, than, than the experience than Philadelphia in the summer. But you know, so I'd go to Hawk Mountain, I go to Cape May, I go to Tinicum by the airport, in you know, Pennypack Park, get in nature, get away from all this bullshit. And then you start learning that nature is like being dist- annihilated. And so the thing that you love that like is in trouble, and you feel alienated from your from your peers. And then someone's like, by the way, there's music that's political that talks about these issues that's crazy sounding, you know, like makes Midnight Oil look weak. And I love Midnight Oil. They're <laughs> awesome. But I mean, like, you know, you don't have to like, you don't feel like you're a misfit listening to like U2 or, or you know, REM where they're somewhat politically conscious or whatever. Like, this is like crazy sounding music that was politically conscious. And I was like, just sign me up. Like. Something like I'm done. Like this is me. So how did you come to actually hear the crazy sounding music? You know, did, like did these people give you, you know, a record, or did you go look at look for them at the mall? They invited to me to me to a party, and I heard it there. And I first heard a uh, crass. You know, um, always good party music. <laughs> yeah, and I heard uh, you know the Dio's living, and I swear to God, I thought they were saying Dosi Do, Dosi Do. It would be party music then. So I thought it was like a punk square dance or something, but. <laughs> I did. Mean, there were some skaters that I knew that played me Minor Threat around the same time. Like I went up to Half Pipe up in the. This is this is 
people growing up in a city is like, people don't, they think that like you grow up in a city and you have all the stuff at your fingertips. Like you don't, especially when you're young, when you're like a, te- like a young teenager. Like I actually went to the suburbs to hang out with like punks because, you know, there weren't like, punks aren't from the city. They move there in their 20s. So when you're like 15, 16, 17, you don't have like punk friends in town. You got to go like farther away usually. So I like took a bus way out of the suburbs to like this these skaters whose dad was um, a minister and had a garage at the church that they built half pipe in, and that's what I first heard minor threat, you know. And the, the the dude's girlfriend went to my high school, but she wasn't really punk. She was one of those girls that were like Doc Martens in like striped tights and a big sweater. Yeah, like they don't do that anymore. But that was like piano key scarf, maybe. <laughs> yeah, something like. That. Uh, so obviously the punk took hold in you, uh, and you became uh, involved in the scene. How did you come to be re- involved in you know the actual punk scene of Philadelphia in the nineteen nineties? So I, uh, well, I just I did started to make punk friends. You know, and these were kids that like went to Washington High School, which is another. I went to Lincoln High. They went to Washington. It was another high school in Philly, but farther out in the Northeast. It was weird because half of them were from Olney and half of them were from way up in the northeast. And I was like in the middle of the two. Um, and then Nazis came and recruited all of them but one. So I kind of had to find a new crew. And there was punks that I met that party, you know. Um, they, uh, I started just pounding around with them more and in like this whole South Street crew. And then like out of that crew, like this sucks formed. And... And then, you know, we would hang out at uh, Stalag, my, you know, before, and then I ended up moving into Stalag, uh, like a year after it started, and then I started promoting shows there. So why don't you explain to, to the listener what Stalag was, I guess you could say now, uh, and and how, how things work there. Stalag 13 was a warehouse, like basically a garage um, on Lancaster Avenue, and it was in between two other... Um, warehouses that had done shows like there were I mean they were kind of they were punky people but they were like older and like not kind of over being super involved on the level that we were and, you know and they would do shows occasionally and so we friends of mine got this warehouse space and they they would do shows occasionally and then um, then I moved in there and um, some other people from this collective that did shows called the Cabbage Collective. <laughs> I've heard of them. <laughs> that were friends of mine. Um, and since I was in there, if they could start doing shows, and I was like, yeah. And but these guys were a couple. <laughs> you guys, these guys. Yeah, you can address. You guys were a couple up. years older than me, and so I think you're you kind of were less into doing shows, and I and I was like at the you know I was a couple years younger, so I was at the prime age to really get into it, and so I wanted to this place to be like a venue first and a house last you know like it was a shitty place to live mm-hmm. it was a can, you de- hard... can you describe a little bit of what it was like living in, in Stalag or what most people most, most people thought it was a squat we paid rent mm-hmm. you know I mean it was but you know the bathroom often didn't work um, and you know and it was a, a venue I mean it was the one only bathroom for you know a venue that would, at one point we did like a show a week. We did like no, like I remember one time we did fifteen shows in a month, and upwards of three hundred people per show. Sometimes we actually did shows where the band had to play twice or so many people and have like different rounds, of, you know, two different like shows in the same night. 
And so the bathroom got well overused. Where where does the human waste product go when when the toilet doesn't work? Um, and sometimes we would use the side bat. We'd use a side yard in a bag. In desperation, usually we used our friends. We went to a store or used our friend's uh, house around the corner. Yeah. Luckily, Andrew, who more or less became... Andrew you know, Martini. Yeah, Andrew Martini. We were part, basically partners as promoters at Stalag, and he lived around the corner, so we used his... I think we even had their key at one point, you know? Mm-hmm. But they fixed it eventually, and it worked. So this know? is late 90s you're talking about now, uh, you know, yeah. Stalag. Um, and how long were you involved with Stalag as a venue? Um... Three years, I think I lived in there. Well, I did a show before. I did a show or two before I lived there, and then I lived there for three years until it closed. Okay. So, uh, so I guess we'll get into the the birth of Rambo because uh, it's probably what, roughly around that time. Yeah, we we, we never actually played Stylog, but we started before Stylog got shut down. So, what year? What year was the band formed? Ninety nine. Okay, and then what is the the genesis of the formation of the band? Um. Uh, Andy, the guitar player. Andy Wheeler. Yeah, like my other best friend. I have a best friend collective. Born Andy, basically. <laughs> a couple of people pretty cl- close in there. Uh, and uh, well, Andrew Martini's up there too, but he moved to New York. Uh, but um, um, Andy started playing with Jeremy, the drummer of Killman Who Questions, and Jay Shefjuk, who sang for Kid Dynamite. And but Jay was playing bass. And he's playing guitar, jamming, playing drums, and I just informed them that I was their singer. Okay. And and then we, and then Jay just you know he was too busy with Kid Dynamite, so we we got Bo to play bass and uh. Not Bull. Yeah, Bo, not Bull, Bo, okay. uh, to play bass and uh. And then, you know, we made a demo, which Hoek, who you've interviewed already, yes. recorded the demo. Yeah, very good. And then we eventually got John Robinson. Um, from Good Clean Fun, who moved to Philly to be the second guitar player, and then you know. So Rambo is an acronym. Uh, what is the absurd thing that it stands for? Uh, it, it changed. It was the first was Revolution, Anarchy, Mosh, Bike, Overthrow. <laughs> then the second re- record was uh, Resisting American Military Business Operations. But it, though, it was an acronym because two things. Um, I asked uh, Mike Bukowski who was an artist um, who was more or less, I mean, we consider him part of the band, just like, you know, like Guy Voucher from Crass, you know, like, he mm-hmm. was like in, in our collective. And uh, he did, um, I asked him to make a logo for the band based off of the Red Army Faction logo. So I just told him to make Rambo as an acronym just to go with the logo. Mm-hmm. And the people start asking me what the, it meant. And because, you know, Gizm, that Japanese, like, you know, metalish punk band, classic band like changed their what you know god in his schizoid mind gorilla incendiary sabotage mutineers i just and mdc did the same thing yeah mdc exactly i have an mdc tattoo i mean love mdc you know so in the spirit of those bands i just we just changed the name you know every our goal with every album we would change the name um but it, i mean it, i named it john dudek who's now gone from very records very distribution as in records. I worked for him, and he just said, you know, he thinks a great name for like a thrashy power violence whatever band would be Rambo. And I was like, done. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone went to my high school. You Did know? he really? Yeah. He got kicked out of like Central or something, and went to Lincoln and 
finish. And that's why in Rocky Three, which is the parade to celebrate his victory in Rocky Two, has Lincoln's band in it. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, so did the band do anything significant, like a tour or anything, before there was a bull in the band? No, that's why Bull was in the band. Okay, well, I guess we'll bring Bull into the thing now. So, how did Bull come to be in the band? Basically, nothing significant happened with Rambo before I was in the band. <laughs> and that's what Bull says. <laughs> the first uh, album didn't happen. Yeah. Uh, no, the first album and the demo were recorded before I joined. And then uh, Tony and I staffed, worked together at the Wooden Shoe uh, Anarchist Bookstore. And... Uh, I remember one day him coming in and uh, saying he had a ridiculous proposal for me that he didn't think I'd go for, uh, which was to go on tour with them uh, in the U.S. that summer because uh, Bo couldn't do it for some reason. Uh, so you knew that Tony, that Bull had played you know, yeah. bass with Policy 3 prior to... Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound, I mean, stupid or weird, but Bull's kind of like... Like I said, when you're in your like early twenties, like someone who's like two years older than you is like old, oh, it's a massive older. difference. Yeah, yeah. And Bull's also in big, you know, large because if you you guys got into punk young in the first place, and you got your younger brother into it, so like you guys kind of had this Bull kind of had this long history already, even though he was only two years older than me. So Bull's like everybody knew Bull. Everybody knew he played in bands that were like because Philly also Philly didn't have bands. That were that legendary. And, like, Policy 3 was, like, part of a movement that, like, made something happen. You know, that was, like, they were a renowned band from Philly, even if it wasn't really my thing. Like, I knew about them. I knew that they toured. And, like, people from outside Philly knew them. So, Mm -hmm. you know. So I thought long and hard about uh, joining Rambo for this tour and decided to go for it. Uh, And then, yeah, that was was the beginning of my, my time in the band. People were like shocked. They didn't believe him when joined Rambo, because like he's like, we were like this ridiculous like joke band, and Bull was from like this like serious like other you know like like they're like no way you got him how that happened. It was like people really thought it was crazy. Did you did you think it was ridiculous, Bull, that you were joining this you know as Tony says this joke band? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, I thought it was kind of ridiculous. I was a little unsure how I felt about it, uh, you know, the the two main bands that I played in prior to that uh, were pretty serious, you know, pretty political, part of the whole, like, 90s DIY punk scene. And you're talking about Policy 3 and 400 years. Yeah. Um, and then after, you know, being unsure as to whether I'd play in another band again, to then get asked to play with this band, which at that point Tony was the only one I was really friends with in the band. Uh, I knew the other folks, but not well. Uh, I was, yeah, I was pretty unsure as to how how that would work for me. Uh, but it was great. I had a great time on that first tour. Uh, so the first tour was the U.S., right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So did you go all the way out to West Coast? Yeah. Okay. We did. Uh, any particular incidents of note? On this on this tour, I mean, pretty much the entire tour was crazy. Because <laughs> um, we, you know, we didn't, t- we t- we already had a full length album out and had it like a CD, uh, the DVD version had a CD ROM with the show, what our live shows were like. Because mm-hmm. you know we we were six, you know Max who's in Spaz, you know it's funny yeah. for the connection I met him because of you guys doing that show at my house, how insular is this shit? <laughs> but Max. Um, 
It's Philadelphia. Yeah. He uh and and punk is general. He yeah. he he uh, did the record and uh, sixty five. Yeah, sixty five records. records. He offered to do a seven inch. You know, kill the man who questions the band that Jeremy, our our drummer and our bass player were in. We were a side project of Kill the Man Who Questions. They went on a tour. They had a Durango demo with them. Some people got it, and Max wrote us and was like, "Dude, I want to, you know, do your seven inch." And I was like, "We don't want to do a seven inch. We want to do a full length," which is kind of unheard. That kind of not. It, that used to happen in like the '80s, but like in the '90s, it was like every band put, must put out a seven inch or fifteen with splits first before <laughs> the album, yeah, which right. meant that the album sucked because all your best songs were on these other records. Mm-hmm. And we were like, "No." We want to do a full length because we had a whole idea of what this band was, you know. Like, I wanted to put out an album like a conflict album that was like a full a full concept with like booklet, you know, like. And there was at least like twelve minutes worth of music. Yeah. <laughs> go on that full length. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was nineteen minutes. So like, I wanted to do, and you know, we had the theatrics and all that down, and we had like a whole thing, and I just wanted a full package. So it was very well received. Um, and people wanted us to tour, and that's why we had the lineup change, because Jeremy and Bo were like, we're already in this other band that tours, we can't do two bands. We didn't, you know, anticipate that this would happen, and... and So, I guess we should talk about the, you know, you mentioned the theatrics, and for those who, who might not be familiar with the band, clearly that's a really big part of the Rambo experience, and, and kind of grew bigger and bigger. So, the two of you maybe could explain... What was the theatrical experience of Rambo? Well, I would say uh, early on that the video that was uh, part of the CD-ROM that came with the first release was um, had footage of a show in Philly that was really ridiculous. It had a lot of theatrics. Like what? Uh, let's see, a cardboard helicopter... Well, yeah, I guess the show that really got, well, yeah, we did one show where we had a cardboard helicopter, like, up on a balcony, and we all climbed down from a ladder from it, and then... <laughs> where, where was this show? The Rotunda. Okay. And then, while we were playing, we had a whole bunch of, like, people dressed as riot cops, like, assault the audience, like, with, you know, like, you know, like, gently assault the audience, and right. the people that are friends that knew they were going to be assaulted... Uh, like kind of like a Seattle protest thing, you know, with, and then we had a fight back, you know, and it's a coordinated thing. And then when we played, actually with um, Locust and uh, What Happens Next and Life's Hot, and um, we we did we had like two different balconies, and one side we had like twenty five kids dressed as Vikings and twenty five kids dressed as riot cops. Um, my idea was that there was a recent huge protest in Stockholm over one of those big financial you know monetary fucking yeah. horrible groups that decide go above the government and decide everything for everybody fuck everybody over so it was so I was like Sweden Vikings riot cops cool done and then so that that kind of got it, the ball rolling I mean it all started because we were called Rambo and we, our first show which was in New Brunswick all these kids that were friends of ours showed up, like, I guess they raided their dad's hunting closet and just showed up in, like, crazy camouflage. So people were already into it even before it became a thing. Like, somehow people kind of tuned into the fact that there was a theatrical... Yeah, well, I mean, I guess some of it, you know, it has to do with me because I've always been, like, a ridiculous person and, like, always, like, wearing weird clothes and costumes and 
known for that anyway. I and should then, point out to the listener that Tony's wearing a tutu for this interview. <laughs> but uh, Very fetching. But, yeah, so, you know, my friends knew I was in this ridiculous band. We named it Rambo. So they just showed up in the camo and, like, weird gear and, like, started just dancing around like, like nuts. And uh, so we're like, I guess we should all wear a camo. I think we actually all wore it ourselves, too, our first show. Like, you know, because like, we're called Rambo, you know? Mm-hmm. And then people kept doing that. Although when, once we started the war, we decided not to wear camo anymore. Uh, <laughs> and we just wore all black outfits, like like uh, uh, crass with, like, logos and stuff, you know? But, um... And then we eventually just started wearing short shorts with, like, Rambo written on the back. I guess, I guess yeah, you know, and then we played Tragedy. <laughs> the evolution. One of our friends' bands, Tragedy, from Portland, they're, like, really stark and, and serious. Uh, although they're funny dudes in person, but the band had this, like, you know, image. And and uh, they had this whole thing, like, a couple of things they mentioned, fearing technology. So we played with them, had our friends who went to art school, made giant cardboard robots that were the moshing machines. Because my idea was that I, we were pro-technology and, you know, can improve our lives, even the mosh pit. So we kind of kept going from that, you know, with, and we put all these, we put all the footage on our, on our CD-ROM version of our album. So when we first went on tour, like, you know, I'd say at least half the shows, kids would make, you know, take shopping carts and cover them with cardboard and make tanks out of them and, like, do crazy outfits and stuff. So, and we, uh, both in, uh. San Francisco, some people, we played like a couple days after Christmas, so some people flew home for Christmas, so the rest of us stayed and like made crazy, you know, we made a whole nativity scene, and we dressed up. So you have we, a little workshop or something? So. Yeah, we played with live from Japan, and the three and the three dudes in the band were made into wise men, these Japanese guys <laughs> had no idea what was going on, and then, I, what did we, I think we dressed the, the drummer up as like a sheep or something, and then Greg Daly yeah. and, and, um, and Nicole from Witch Hunt was there, and so he was Joseph and she was Mary. We had a baby Jesus pinata. Yeah. Uh, other fr- and then we had, like, Romans, because it was, you know, and it looked like a fifth grade, like, pageant, and then, like... Where was this taking place? Where was this was, like, Gilman Street. Street, right. And then we did something similar in Minneapolis. Oh, L.A. In too. L.A., too, yeah, we did stuff in L.A., so we, we, you know, we actually took... We planned a day off in Minneapolis, a day off in L.A., and then we had this, so we actually planned for theatrics, you know? Um, so then, you know, it kept going from there. And it's a point where people were doing it all over the world at shows. But then also to kind of put it in perspective of the timing, then uh, when Rambo was first getting going, it was a time when the scene in Philly was pretty violent. And uh, I think, Tony, you could probably speak to this better, but... Uh, even when I got into the band, it was one of the goals was to have fun, like to have kind of like a safe space that shows where folks could really have a good time and not worry about getting like kicked in the face or, well, they might get kicked in the face actually from people stage diving or whatever. But, you know, it wasn't going to be the space where it was They're like... They're going to be doing kung fu moves, right? Yeah, right. it's not like a bunch of beefy dudes like beating the shit out of each other. And uh, then anybody else get near them either. Yeah. yeah. That was when like that whole like windmilling like kickboxing scene kind of started because we had those like you know we're like a crust band but with like New York City breakdowns like New York City Harker breakdowns like we were a little afraid that the thugs would like us um and so I don't know I think, I think when you see a band and the whole even, even bands when like like tragedy like you know not that they're you know they're they're great guys that don't want people kickboxing shows or whatever but like 
when you're up there and you have that like even if it's unintentional these guys look cool they're wearing cool punk clothes they're kind of badass it kind of creates like a you know it's dudes dude. playing heavy music it kind of creates a dude fest you can't sometimes. really avoid it even though and so our idea was if we look completely ridiculous like we're not if we look so stupid not remotely cool at all like we're wearing short shorts and like you know like yeah, dudes might not be into that like your butt yeah yeah like but not you know but we also didn't want to like do the thing where we get naked where some women would feel uncomfortable with a sweaty dudes junk jumping off stage either like we wanted to create a place where, where like people would feel comfortable like letting loose and being silly and but we play we do play aggressive music and so we didn't want to also make it like everybody sit on the floor and like don't you know we like we wanted people to mosh and have fun but we didn't want anybody to mosh with a, clo- a clenched fist or like it, it, you know we wanted it to be yeah I guess it's like if you're putting like Fugazi at one end where if you move the wrong way then everything has to stop and have a discussion and then on on the other end you've got you know kickboxing people beating the crap out of each other you know you kind of find your way along that kind of you know, that line where you want to fit in. Yeah, we definitely, I mean, I think we were successful in that, you know, I think a lot of women very felt comfortable being in the pit when we played. And I think that's too, like, women want to mosh. And, like, you know, like, we, you know, like, so we kind of, we wanted to create, like, an all-inclusive place to mosh. Like, a safe, like, you know, like, you can have circle pit and, in, in like, run around like a nut and, and have that, like, physical contact dancing to punk music but not have it be you know scary like if you're gonna go to the hospitals by accident not because someone was a douchebag you know <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, I mean more than anything people want to have fun like a lot of people are going to punk shows to get away from like their family or like you know shitty situation or like escape for a while and uh, as you know I would say for Rambo it was equal parts the politics and the fun, like, and we really just kind of wanted to meld those things together and combine it in a way that wasn't really too common at that time. And clearly it worked because you found that audiences were really reacting well to this stuff because they were kind of like equal participants, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And that was the other thing, too, is we wanted to blur the line between band and audience. And we'd have kids come up to us and be like, man, that was the best show I ever saw. And I was like, well, we didn't do shit. Like, because say we played in another city... And so we didn't have time to do the theatrics. So, like, these kids were doing all this, all, made all the stuff, did it without even our involvement. And then they were coming up to us saying, yeah, you know, that was the best show we were at. We're like, we didn't do anything. Like, in fact, I was, like, distracted and looking at what you guys were doing. And, like, we probably <laughs> played terribly because we were being constantly bumped into by, like, a cardboard 18 van, you know, or something. And, like, and, and I would seriously miss, like, whole verses because I would just be like, what was that that just happened? You know, this thing. And so, and I was like, you guys made it the best show ever. Like, it was all you. Like, you know, like, we didn't do anything. You know, like, just tried our best to play. You know, <laughs> like, we really... We were the soundtrack for it, but the audience was really what took it to the next level. Right. There was a giant cell phone at one point, right? Yeah. That was... Whenever we played with Tragedy, we always made fun of them. And so, we, uh, um, one time... We played the washing machines. The other time, um, I had a giant cell phone and then a giant Palm Pilot. And then the Palm Pilot was like, what am I supposed to do today? And someone handed me this giant, like, six Palm Pilot. And then it, it turned it on. It set it off, like, on the screen. And that was, like, the reminder. And then uh, another time we played with Tragedy, we uh, we had a, 
um, all the punk birds, like people dressed in costumes of every punk bird, because it's like tragedy. They weren't the first one with a punk bird, but they they like they like proliferated using birds as punk logos. So we had the tragedy bird. Someone dresses the tragedy bird, and then like the anti-schism bird, the yeah. discharged dove, like it's the flux of pink pink Indian. Yeah, we had that we definitely. Been, yeah, <laughs> we definitely punk had birds. I guess there has been a pretty good number of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorites was one of our Philly shows at the First Unitarian Church where we were dressed up as mummers, uh, which was difficult to play in, but uh, made for some ridiculous costumes. And you made the, all the costumes yourself? Yeah, like big goofy back pieces and yeah, face paint and all that. <coughs> yeah, like, and our back pieces were all like ridiculous, like Bulls was like Rocky, it said, fell off your freedom. Mine was the helicopter dropping the bomb on Move House and said, Welcome to Philly. Like, <laughs> yeah. and uh, all you know, and we, we, we would make the th- costume ourselves, and we usually have friends over for a while. And we had, like, like I said, these, these kids, like, you know, Justin and Peter from U Arts would make some stuff, and then we, uh, you know, um, and this guy Russ and stuff, and then we would do a lot of them on our own. And just get a bunch of friends to come over and, you know, do it. I think that might have been the first time you wore the chaps, too. Is that oh, true? You want to talk about chaps a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I had, like, anarcho-syndicalist chaps that I wore. You know? <laughs> it would, Definitely what, no what, pants what, what makes them anarcho-syndicalist? They had giant random black stars on okay, them. Right. You know? Of course. <laughs> you know? And uh, so, go, going back to the, the first U.S. tour, uh, was the internet in wide enough use at that time that you were able to utilize it for the tour? I There's a lot of phone calls. I think it was mostly done with phone calls. But that's the thing is because, you know, someone, you know, me and Bull were promoters, you know, for years. So yeah. we, you know, our first tour, we just called up the people, you know, like, I've, you know, I've done five shows for your band. You better do a show yeah. for me. Like, <laughs> not, it wasn't even that like that, you know. It was just like, hey, yeah, they yeah. probably would be happy to do it. Once yeah, they get but it was just call. like, it was just like you kind of couldn't say no. And also, I mean, luckily we were a band that had an album out. We weren't just touring on a demo. We actually had a following, you know, so it was easy to do shows. But but also as a, I mean, one, as two people who had been involved in the punk scene for a long time, it was easier for us, you know, because we already had a lot of the connections and having done tours before too. But then at the same time as... Uh, in the early days of the internet, I think it, it helped us in, the, in that it was our first tour still, but it helped, you know, that flow of information, getting the word out to people that, you know, hey, there's this band Rambo, it's got, you know, folks in it who played in some other bands that I might have liked or whatever, playing in Philly or whatever, playing in San Francisco or something. And uh, we've got, there may be weird uh, props and shit at the show, so maybe I should go check it out. And we learned, too, that uh, let the punks do the shows, not the anarchists. <laughs> uh, so the anarchists, would they do a crappy job or what? I think, honestly, the, the only anarchists we asked to do, like, those shows like, fell through before we even played. <laughs> so Emma Goldman's show sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, pu- I mean, the anarchist punks are the best, but, you know, if we had a contact in the city that was just an anar- it was more an anarchist contact, not a punk contact, you know, we learned it's like, you know what, like, get the get the punk person even if you know that even if you even if we know someone from like a political community that's not connected to the music go with the person that's in the music scene not like the politics yeah, in that scene you know punks know how to do shows yeah that's true uh, so I guess the 
to me, I guess, the most remarkable thing about the band was the fact that you toured in Southeast Asia. Uh, now, did you, you do Europe as well? Oh yeah, we did Europe twice, yeah. including a lot of Eastern okay. Europe. Um, and then, and two tours in Asia. Now, you keep saying Southeast Asia. We did we did Asia as a whole. We you know we didn't just do Southeast Asia. We did you know East Asia as well. And also Australia. Yeah, well, why don't you talk about the the tours that you did overseas? All of them. I mean, we don't have a vast amount of time, but I think it's it's really impressive all the different places that the band managed to go and all through punk. Yeah, well, Europe. You know, we did all of Western Europe pretty much, um, and uh, Eastern Europe. We didn't play you know uh, any former former Soviet you know republics or the Balkans, but we I mean or the Baltics, but we played you know Iceland. All you know, Scandinavia, Finland, Greece, Macedonia, Serbia, Slovenia, Croatia, Slovakia, yeah, Czech. But everybody goes to Czech, Poland. And um, did you find that when you went to these places, that the kids there knew the band? And, oh yeah, yeah. And did they want to do? Did you know? Were they in on the theatrics? And yeah, a lot of the places. Yeah, uh, Macedonia for sure. Um, you know, um, yeah. The Czech Republic was, was huge for us, but. Um, the, but Czech Republic kind of became like, they, you know, they didn't really, you didn't really feel like they're, it's him playing Czech Republic is like playing Germany, it's not like playing like Serbia. Well, um, you go to say Macedonia, I mean, are you amazed that like there are kids there who have made props for your <laughs> band from Philadelphia, United States? I'm always kind of amazed by that, yeah. I mean, even in Germany and Italy, you know, the places that are more looks. common for bands from the U.S. to tour... Uh, just to see the the effort and enthusiasm that the people have put into like this one show that you know is our band is is awesome. It's really it's uh it's very endearing and uh, I don't know makes you feel good about being a punk. It seems uh, like you plugged into something in the uh, in bringing like you're saying bringing the fun to the shows, but yet not being a, like a goofy pop punk band, you know, which would bring fun to shows, but would always be sort of feather light. There were I can't really think of too many heavy bands that still manage to incorporate fun. So surely there's going to be people who who want to hear something harder, but still also would like to have a good time. And who the hell's who are going to listen to? You know, if that's <laughs> yeah. what they want in the live experience. And it's funny because you know the. Southeast Asia or the Asia thing happened because then we got an email and I checked my email in like a youth center in, in Croatia and saw that like someone in Malaysia wanted us to want, well they actually they actually approached us about putting our record out on tape in Malaysia um, because it's it's really hard for them to afford importing our records so we said yeah sure and then soon after that someone from Indonesia asked the same thing and you know I think Singapore did like a CD, so so they were all making like they their own versions. Yeah, of it. we let up. Yeah, and our our record was, or our record or our records were, in addition to you know our first album was in '65, and then it was released in Germany. The same record, the exact thing, but on Assault Records in Germany, and our second album was on Havoc Records. But I think that first album was released, besides the main, you know releases you know on vinyl and cd of assault records and um 65 records also released like that with seven inches on it in australia it was released in thailand as a cd singapore as a cd uh poland as a tape and you have no control over any of these releases no no we sanctioned them and we got permission 
we got we made sure that it was cool with the label that put it out originally. Okay. In 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 um, it was on tape. Yeah, in Poland, Indonesia, Indonesia, and Malaysia, and maybe that's it. I don't know. I'm not sure. So that opens the door then for you to go to these places that clearly almost no bands ever. I think before, in, especially at that time. Yeah, I think Code Thirteen, and before that, um, All You Can Eat was it? Yeah. And uh, and they didn't even go to all the places we went, but you know and but. You know, so when they wrote us, we were like, yeah, you could put it out as a record and said, but, you know, if you want us to come and play, we'll do that too. And they're like, serious? We're like, yeah. <laughs> the idea has got to be a bit daunting because I, and I can't imagine that they can really afford to pay you enough money to perform to cover what would, would must be an astronomical cost to fly. No, that's what the U.S. Play. and Europe are for. Right. So you were using those the European U.S. tours to fund the Southeast or the Asian tours. Yeah. Well, the first tour... We wound up paying out of pocket for most of it. Yeah. The first Asia tour, Asia and Australia. The Australian piece of it uh, paid for a portion of it. Uh, but we really wound up having to work a whole lot and save a whole lot of money to shell out the money to cover this because we knew going into it that there was no way that, you know, kind of the economies of, uh, or not economies of scale, but just, you know, the difference in the economies uh, and the values of the currencies and such. Uh, that there was no way that, you know, the uh, currencies of those countries could pay us any, anywhere close to what it costs us to, to fly there and, uh, you know, take off work and uh, pay for our expenses while we're there and such. I think for the most part, we didn't take money. The yeah, yeah, I mean, there were, you know, say a show, a typical show that had maybe a couple hundred people at the end of it would have the equivalent of like 25 bucks left over or something and uh, yeah the folks who put on the show would usually just keep that or use that to make more tapes or CDs or something if, uh, of other bands uh, there are very few that we actually yeah, took any money away from or maybe you know there would be some food or something that we would get uh, and sometimes too they would offer want to pay us and be like you know don't like you know, we, we're, we're doing just fine. Because also, not only, you know, the shows there are like 50 cents to a dollar per person, you know? So, even if you had like hundreds of people after expenses, it wasn't that much anyway. And, and you know, but to get from show to show, we like took a train that was like $10. And we stayed at like a guest house that was $5. Or they put us up and they fed us. So, it was like... We're barely spending any money anyway, yeah. you know, and get to do all this cool stuff. So yeah, and I guess if you're going there as people who love nature, you can kind of look at it as a vacation because I know from seeing the video that came out with the second record, that the DVD, that there's this you know you're doing all this kind of nature stuff in between the performances, and sometimes it seems like that's the reason why you're there. Oh, and also you're performing. Yeah, we'll also consider that a lot of these places, you you know, you only play on the weekends. So, you know, what are you going to do during the week? Monitor lizards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> lizards, you know? Exactly. Like, that's, you know, that's... And, yeah, we, we you know, we it was like a vacation to us. And, you know, you know we're not going to go to these beautiful places and not enjoy what they have to offer culturally and, and naturally. Although it's harder than... It's pretty hard. You know, in a lot of these developing nations, like, anywhere near a road is going to be developed like it's not like here where you know you could 
you can just pull off the side of the road and have a good quality forest in many places in the U.S. Like in there, like if there's a road, people are that live in there, mm-hmm. so you kind of had to go to a park or something to really access the habitat, you know. So it was harder to do than, than it seems, but you know it was great though, you know. When I think of Rambo uh, touring these places that U.S. bands don't often come through, uh, I kind of think of you guys as being really great ambassadors of the states because. Your band is going to come in, um, you know, you're not, you're not drinkers, you're not drug dudes, you're not crazy party guys. Um, I would imagine you come in very respectfully, really interested in nature, so you kind of show this really positive side to punk and to ultimately to America when you come into these places. You know, you act as a cultural ambassador and you don't bring negativity and chaos, but you bring something really positive. So did you see people reacting really well to the way that you you guys comported yourselves when you moved through these places? Uh, That's a intimidating question to ask modest dudes. But, I mean, one thing, I would say, yeah, I mean, you know, the way you carry yourself will affect how people receive you. Uh, And as a group of punks that are, try to be pretty aware of how they carry themselves, we carry ourselves, uh, you know, we we didn't want to come across as like the you know the typical American tourist who's really obnoxious and demanding and uh, rude and such. And I would say, especially in like our earlier tours during like the Bush years, uh, the U.S. had a pretty bad rap. Um, so for some folks, you know, say we're touring in Indonesia or something, who's on like the terrorist list. Uh, I think it was great for folks to to meet us and be like, you know, not everyone in the U.S. is a racist douchebag. Uh, while at the same time, I I don't see myself as much as like a ambassador of America, but more of like the DIY punk scene and that the international scope of that. Like, uh, I think that to me is way more important. Just kind of making those connections between people that like, you know. We're punks from the U.S., you're punks from Indonesia or Malaysia or Slovakia or whatever, and, you know, our lives and experiences are totally different, but we have these other things that are in common, and uh, it's awesome that we can do this thing together, and outside of our weird little scene, nobody's ever heard of us, but, you know, we still manage to, like, do really awesome stuff and meet great people and, you know, exchange ideas and such that uh, not a lot of people get to do that, and it would be great if more people in the U.S. could do that because I think it would uh, wake people up to some of the more ignorant ideas that they have uh, to how yeah, ignorant they are in certain ways. One of the things I thought was really interesting about the video, uh, I think you're performing in Indonesia and you're playing in like a little village and you're sort of, you're playing outdoors and I, I remember seeing like women holding their babies and old people watching you and like a goat's walking by to chickens, you know, doing some chicken pecking things. I mean, it, it must be very peculiar as a band to perform not only in, you know, a very untraditional performance space, but also in front of people who have probably never seen anything like that before. Well, two things I want to address with that is, first of all, that a lot of people talk about that video and they're like, man, I can't believe you played this little village. That little village was Jakarta. 
<laughs> it looks like it's a city it of is. twenty million people we're playing in. It's just we weren't playing, you know, downtown in the, you know, in, in um, you know, like, you know, we was, you know, the, effectively we were playing Kensington, you know, mm -hmm. and and like I basically played like a rec center in Kensington, but it was Jakarta, and instead of row houses around it, it was it's like it's really hard to think of Kensington and Jakarta in the same. Well, I was thinking like we were Philly. I was thinking like we played like you know an average neighborhood in Jakarta, but. You know, most people live in like a, a little single house with a, a you know like a terracotta roof. You know how it wasn't like that's just the housing of you know Philadelphia people live in row houses and in Milwaukee they live in little single houses and you know mm -hmm. ranches in Austin or something. But there we, they live in terracotta roof houses and and you know they're they often don't have air conditioning so they're like kind of airy or whatnot. But it may, but it's, it was you know we were playing the na the national sport of Indonesia is badminton. So we were playing a badminton court in a neighborhood. You know, was, we were also playing a, a basketball court in North Philadelphia. You know, mm -hmm. the same same difference. Um, but you know, imagine if there was a show outdoors for free anywhere around. People are just going to wander in and check it out. I mean, you know, we, there was five hundred punk kids there. You know, but their families and and the people who around there came by to see what this commotion was. Like it wasn't so much like. You know, it would happen anywhere. It just, I guess, because it's in a different country that, like, you know, obviously it looks different. It, it seems crazier than it was. It kind of wasn't, other than I signed a baby. Right. You know, <laughs> but. Uh, and one of the things, too, I want to say is we made a point um, that we didn't play anywhere that we weren't. In, we tried to pretty much play almost exclusively places that we were invited and that we had fans. And the only place that we really deviated from that was, like, Cambodia. And that was just because we were already in, going to Thai, go to Thailand, and you know, we're close by. A guy wrote a letter, Maximum Rock and Roll. This guy, Chris, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, from um, he had a comic book and punk record store. He's an expat in Pen Pen, and you know, we're like, yo, we're gonna be over that way anyway. Like, so you know, we played mostly to expats. Um, not that many, you know, Cambodians, and that's it. We, it was a cool experience, but like, you know, everywhere else we went, we played. To punks of that country, uh, you know, ethically of that country, who were our legitimate fans, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, and that's what we wanted to do. Like, so they're very, you know, they're the punk scenes are very clued in, you know. They, uh, you know, the internet was starting then, but even before when it wasn't that, you know, they're still reading Maximum Rock and Roll and stuff. Like, the network, you know, preceded the internet, but it was you know, really reinforced after the internet, and the, you know, they're really, uh, it was kind of like playing anywhere else. You know, it just it just seems more exotic that people don't go there, mostly because it's prohibitively expensive to go there. Right. One of the things I found most interesting and inspiring from uh, our tours in Asia was often, you know, as it as the tour progressed, we would kind of have this posse of people with us. When you know, like we went to Indonesia, we had some folks from Singapore and Malaysia with us uh, who were meeting the the punks in Indonesia, so they could create a more solid. DIY network of show promoters uh, and so you know we had this whole crew of people traveling with us too that was really interesting and and unique in that regard wow that's great mm. do, you, do you think the door's been open? probably I, I think okay. All right. some more kind of steps so we're running out of time uh, and I don't like I don't want to cut it off but I must so I want to at least address one question to both of you um, and I guess you kind of have to answer it in a fairly pithy way, but see what you can do. Um, one of the main things I like to get through 
get to in the interviews is how DIY ethos has moved through somebody's life. Now, clearly, you know, what we've detailed already and that we'll detail with Bull when we have the Couch Collective interview is that, you know, for many, many years that things moved through you through punk. So now, 2013, um, how do you each feel... The, the ethos is affecting you presently. How how do you live that ethos or not? But well, uh, I guess I'll start. Uh, let's see. At this point, I've been a punk for over. I've considered myself a punk for over twenty five years, uh, and although I'm not playing in a band now, who knows? I may not play in a band again. Uh, and I'm not putting on shows anymore. I don't even go to shows all that often. Um, but I still, you know, if someone asked me to describe myself, I'd still call myself a punk. And it has informed almost every facet of my life. Uh, things that I've learned through punk, the friends that I have, the relationships I have, the lifestyle I lead. Uh, I still very much consider myself a punk in it. Uh, everything that I do I feel like I I put through a, a lens of punk rock and you know kind of analyzing my my beliefs and my life choices uh, in a way that you know punk has kind of taught me to question things uh, <clears throat> and, um, I mean in the day-to-day -day, uh, I work at a food co-op I've worked there for quite a while now it's Mariposa Mariposa food co-op uh, it's in my neighborhood. I feel very committed to my neighborhood. I've been here quite a while now, uh, 13 years or so. Uh, and I've worked as a co-op for 12 years now. And uh, I just feel very strongly about it as a, as a kind of cooperative business model, an alternative business model within you know, a capitalist system that I have a lot of problems with. Uh, <clears throat> I see this as a good alternative uh, to how people can work and live and make a living in kind of the least exploitative way, be it from, you know, the vegetables that we're sourcing from farmers that I know to uh, products that are from uh, companies that are certified as being fair trade to, you know, the environmental practices of the, the farmers and the products that we're getting in to the pricing structures that we use for trying to make healthy foods more accessible to people. Uh, to educational programs that we, we try to um, encourage at the co-op so people can learn more about nutrition or, uh, you know, labor issues within farming or uh, growing methods of foods or, you know, if they have gluten allergies, learning about how to deal with that or whatever, like all these different things. Uh, as far as a job goes, this this place, you know, of course it's not perfect, but... Uh, it it covers a lot of the bases for me as far as my beliefs that I hold hold strong uh, and have held true to for many years and uh, which has very much been informed through my experience with punk rock and uh, things I've learned through that scene. Tony, um, right now, like I uh, have my own environmental consulting business. I mostly do environmental education programs. Uh, mostly work for the Philadelphia Water Department doing environmental ed programs out 
in Southwest Philly, you know, right down the street from here, in a Cops Creek Environmental Center. Um, I feel like I take, I mean, part of being punk is loving the youth, so I work with kids a lot, which, and teach them about nature and uh, about environmental issues. Um, you know, I just, I literally came from a middle school where I was working with, took my high school kids that I work with to middle school to help them in their orchard, <laughs> you know, like, so, um, you know, for what punk has taught me, you know, the DIY ethic and way of doing things. So, you know, I have my own business because I had to form one to keep a job. Like, they ran out of funding and the water department was like, well, well, we'll fund you, but you got to form your own business. So I was like, okay, I'll do it. And then I'll do other things with it too. And, you know, I may, you know, I wouldn't mind working for the, the city or something where I'm a little bit more stable, but, you know, DIY has really helped me solve problems. And when, I, when I'm working in, you know, I, I'm, I think the biggest thing is, you know, you know, you don't, so many other people kind of think that they they always look for like the the person the person who's supposed to be the person that you go to for this or the or this is the procedure that you must follow to get this done and they don't really think about what they can do themselves and I think I really shock people when I'm like like how do you get schools to join your programs I'm like I just walked up with a you know like a letter of introduction and and asked for the principal and got the school involved like. You know, like, how do you get people to come out to your walks? And, like, I walk up and down 60th Street business corridor and put flyers in the windows. Like, how else do you get people to show up? You know, I just introduce, it's like, here you go, come to this thing. And, and it's, you know, it's, you know, the punk taught me how to do that. And, you know, I don't listen to the music as much. I mean, I don't know, I mean, I do. I mean, I have, like, discharged amoebics and on my iPad, you know? <laughs> but, like... I, I don't really listen to that many new bands. Um, I think, like, punk's always been, like, my... i am always been a punk as a lifestyle, as, like, but not always as a hobby. You know, and punk was my hobby for a long time, where I wanted to put on shows, I wanted to play in a band, I wanted to collect records. But nature, um, you know, outdoor activities has become my hobby, like, my singular focus pretty much in the last almost 10 years at this point um but i just conduct myself as a punk in, in in terms of how i view the world and how i interact with people and institutions um i think a lot of people uh punk they're not so much punks the way i think of punks are they're they're they you know they might go to shows and they might collect records or whatnot but they don't really live that alternatively or, or you know or like this I mean, they might think of themselves as more involved with punk than I am and I'm not going to argue that that's their right to think that but I feel like I'm as punk as I ever was I mean even if I'm not wearing a bullet belt you know okay super well, thank you both very much for uh, talking to me and that's it pleasure meeting you <laughs>